Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. A little later in the show, we're going to talk about big development projects here in the city of Detroit. We have a long-running controversy with those projects that involves how many Detroiters get to participate in construction. The latest being Little Caesars Arena, where $2.9 million in fines have been handed out because contractors have not been able to get 50% of their workers to be from Detroit. Is this something that the contractors themselves are failing at, or is it something that we are failing at as a city? Getting enough people ready to be qualified to do those jobs. We are going to talk with a number of people on a number of dynamics around that uh, that issue. And, of course, we're going to want to hear from you about that. What do you think about the idea that not enough Detroiters participate in big projects like Little Caesars Arena? And more importantly, what do you think we can do about it? So we're going to start that conversation at just about half past the hour. But up first... Former Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio embodies the harshest and some would say the cruelest attitudes Americans have toward undocumented immigrants. Critics accuse him of really abusive tactics that targeted immigrants and Latino residents in particular. Many of those directly violated court orders and ultimately they earned him a conviction for criminal contempt. But now... Those charges are gone, thanks to a late Friday pardon from President Trump. Other than the person who was on the receiving end of this pardon, this is something that's significant in a couple of other ways. First of all, most high-profile presidential pardons come near the end of a presidency, not in the first eight or nine months. And they also usually happen after a pretty lengthy vetting process through the Justice Department. That apparently did not really happen here. So how does this pardon compare in other ways to past presidential pardons? What does it say about the extent of executive power in this country under the Constitution? And given that Arpaio has been pardoned for defying the courts, for saying that he essentially is not going to be subject to the rule of law the way the rest of us are, does that put this in yet another category as an assault on the rule of law, as an assault perhaps on the very idea of our republic, which again rests on the premise that we are all equal under the law? I want to start the conversation today with two people who have thought quite a bit about this issue. Sherry Berman is a professor of political science at Barnard College. Uh, also, Richard Primus is a constitutional law expert and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Sherry and Richard, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Yeah. Good, good morning. Happy to be here. Yes. Uh, Richard, I want to start with you and have you put this in some historical context as far as pardons are concerned. The pardon power has been pretty controversial since it came about in the Constitution. Even Alexander Hamilton, writing in Federalist 74, worried about the idea that a president could misuse this power. He sort of dismissed that, though, saying that a single person who would be empowered to do this would be less likely to indulge shenanigans, I suppose, than a group of people. 
Here we see sort of the opposite unfolding, and I think that's not unusual throughout our history. So it's not. I mean, the, the pardon power is a power that the president exercises unilaterally, and it's always been understood that way. Um, and you know, when Hamilton and the Federalist Papers said, don't really worry about possible abuses here, here's the important thing to remember. Hamilton's job was to sell a product. He needed to get people to vote for the Constitution. That's what the Federalist Papers are. Sure. Think of them as an issue ad or a blog post in favor of the Constitution before an election. So, of course, what he's doing there is downplaying any possible problems that might arise. But what everyone understands about the pardon power is it, of course, can be abused. If a president pardons the wrong people, if he pardons people who really shouldn't be pardoned, who have done bad things for which they should be punished, um, you know, that's going to be a serious problem. Mm -hmm. And the only security against abuse of the pardon power has been the thought that presidents are generally responsible people and that we expect them to exercise the power responsibly. There's no other check on it. And the problem is, what if you get a president who is not a responsible person, right? Um, all sorts of problems could follow. Imagine a president who said, I don't like the anti-pollution laws. I think people should be able to pollute. So I'm just going to announce that anyone who violates the pollution laws mm -hmm. is going to get a pardon and they'll never have to pay for it, or worse. I think that we should, that Americans should be able to export weapons to any country around the, the world they want. They want to do business with North Korea, they want to do business with Russia and sell them arms. I'm just going to announce that I will pardon anyone who does that. That'd be pretty dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the only security against it is the hope that the person we elect as president knows better than to behave that irresponsibly. Yeah, but as we pointed out, that's not unusual that the person who is the president, who holds that power singularly, has exercised it in a way that raised some eyebrows. Well, to raise eyebrows is one thing. Lots of things raise eyebrows. Um, it's hard to know where to find examples that raise this particular problem. Here, here are two examples historically that raised some eyebrows, yeah. um, both from the 1970s. Gerald Ford when he became president, pardoned Richard Nixon mm -hmm. for crimes that Nixon committed or may have committed connected to Watergate. And then a few years later, President Carter pardoned a bunch of people who had broken the law by not complying with draft requirements during the Vietnam War, most of whom had fled to Canada. And in both cases, there was a lot of criticism. There were a lot of people who thought Nixon should not be pardoned. He did things that seriously damaged the system, and he should have to pay for them, not just with impeachment, but with prosecution. And in the Carter case, there were people who said, you know, look, uh, a lot of people went to war and risked their lives when they were called. These other people shouldn't get off. And those are both legitimate grounds of criticism. And in both cases, the presidents made the decisions they made basically on the theory that there had been a very divisive thing in the country, Watergate or Vietnam, and they were going to try to help us put it in the past by saying it's time to let some things be bygones. Both decisions were controversial. I think you could make reasonable arguments for or against those pardons. But we've never seen, I think, something quite like the Arpaio pardon. It's not about something far in the past and putting it behind us. 
It's about sending a signal to the country mm-hmm. that a certain kind of behavior that is lawless is likely to be tolerated. That's new, and it seems to me dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sherry Berman, as I said, you are a professor of political science at uh, Barnard College. Uh, your main interests are European politics and political history, democ- democracy and democratization, globalization and the history of the left. Uh, you were quoted in a Washington Post article over the weekend about this pardon, and I want to read that quote and then uh, have you sort of expand on that. Uh, Arpaio's pardoning, you say, is a political and in particular a signaling move on Trump's part and a smart one. I think Trump has been very good at this. He hasn't been able to get many things through Congress, but he has compensated with exec orders and symbolic politics that have, for the most part, kept his base attached. So you place this pardon in that category. Yes, I mean, and I think it's great that you have both a constitutional law expert and a political scientist on because we will come at this from slightly different directions. Um, I mean, the presidential pardons are, of course, um, instruments of law and have to follow constitutional and other legal guidelines. But they are, as as, uh, Richard said, a sort of, you know, um, a unilateral power of the president. And he has an incredible amount of leeway to use them as he sees fit, as he sees fit. Now, the examples that um, Professor um, Primus gave were, as he said, cases where differences of opinion could be argued about, the legitimacy of the pardon discussed, blah, blah, blah. I think that one can make arguments on both sides of anything, and one could certainly pick more controversial pardons than the ones that Professor Primus had picked, the one that I think most people remember Um, clearly is um, Bill Clinton's pardoning of Mark Rich at the end of his presidency, which he himself came to regret simply because it was so obviously a political act. Um, Rich had fled the country. His wife was a large Democratic donor, blah, blah, blah. I mean, presidents use their powers in a variety of ways. And as I said in that piece that you quoted, I think this was a very clear example of Trump doing something that he has done many, many times before, which many people dislike, which is using his powers to shore up his base in ways that are, shall we say, um, uh, extend or expand the use of his powers Mm -hmm. in ways perhaps that other presidents have not. He clearly was signaling to his base, as evinced by the fact that he was discussing this at a political rally in Phoenix, that he was going to pardon Arpaio because he appealed to the large anti-immigrant sentiment among his most hardcore followers. There is no doubt that this pardon differs in many crucial ways from other pardons, most notably, as Professor Primus has said, not following the Justice Department guidelines. But he's under no obligation to do so. Those are guidelines. Um, he doesn't have to. It's unusual that he didn't. And along with many other, again, unusual moves by, um, by President Trump, this may raise some eyebrows, but it was, is within his powers. And symbolic politics is a, is a really important important part of the presidency. He was clearly doing this again to kind of send a signal to his base because he's lost a lot of other kind of wavering voters. Message, I care. Um, I'm not going to let this guy who's a hero of yours, who's been loyal to me since the early parts of my campaign to go to jail. Um, And we may dislike that, um, but 
you know, again, this is part of what presidents do. Yeah. Uh, the, the political calculus here, I think, is also interesting or perhaps made more interesting by the fact that this is a president who was not elected by a majority of the people. And I have had a concern since that election that he would not, therefore, feel terribly accountable to the majority of people, but would feel far more fidelity to the people who voted for him and the, and the people who were most uh, arduously in favor of him. Is is that one of the dynamics we're seeing play out here, Sherry Berman? Well, I mean, I think that he was elected not by a majority of the popular votes, but by the, a majority of the electoral votes. I mean, it's important for a variety of reasons. I think the reason for Trump's behavior has more to do with him as a person and his personality than whether or not he had gotten an extra two percent of the votes. I mean, he clearly favors loyalty over everything else. He clearly um, craves adulation and so is therefore particularly eager to um, play to those who are his most fervent supporters. I don't think he has a strong sense of um, uh, moderation or compromise, nor do I think he would have had that sense, um, you know, under any other circumstances, that is to say, if he had gotten 52 percent of the vote. Um, this is who he is. I mean, he's not a standard politician. He hasn't had to play the electoral game before. He doesn't really have a lot of interest or experience in building coalitions to pass policies. I think what we're getting is the person more or less who we saw during the campaign, but we somehow expect it to kind of change somewhat or be moderated somewhat by the institutional constraints or context that he would be in as president, and that just has not happened. So I think what we're seeing is the person he is. I think that's not a personality well-suited to the presidency nor to passing um, you know, a sort of broad policy agenda. But, you know, he is who he is. It's the same person we saw during the campaign. I don't think a larger vote share would have made a big difference hmm. in that. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. This is, I am Stephen Henderson. Uh, my guests are Sherry Berman. She's a professor of political science at Barnard College. Also with us is Richard Primus, a constitutional law expert and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. We are talking about the pardon that President Donald Trump extended to Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Does this sort of put the whole idea of pardons in a different category? Is this a singularly odd instance of the presidential pardon power? Uh, Richard, I want to I ask you about um, uh, whether, whether there can be consequence for pardon. In other words, can Congress decide that, yes, you have the power to do this, but the way that you have done it invokes other kinds of perhaps consequences, a censure, for instance, or I guess in the, the most extreme cases, you could say that, uh, that, that impeachment, that this rises to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors, even though that seems a little, uh, I guess, hyperbolic in this, is, is that any sort of possible check that Congress could exercise on this power? Oh, I don't think that's hyperbolic at all. Um, I think that there's no question that the president has the pardon power. And when the president says, I pardon this person, that person is pardoned and the pardon has full legal effect and nothing can be done about it. But the president does that at his own risk, always. 
that's one of the reasons why presidents usually issue their most controversial pardons on the way out the door. Right. right? There's there's no possibility of retaliating against them anymore because they're they're leaving. Right. But Congress can of course decide that the presidential conduct is inappropriate and retaliates. They can retaliate across a whole spectrum of different degrees of retaliation. Right. They can make the president's life difficult by not confirming his nominees or by not moving his legislation, as you say, by censure. And uh, impeachment is also certainly on the table for it. Now, that doesn't mean that impeachment is likely on these facts. Right? Impeachment is only likely when two-thirds of the sitting United States Senate has decided that they've had it with the president and he has to go. And sure. it doesn't seem like we're there. But there's no question that if the Congress thought these pardons are a threat to our order, these pardons show that the president is exercising his powers in irresponsible ways, that they just really should not be exercised, and they show he should not be there, the discretion to make the judgment that this constitutes an impeachable offense is entirely for Congress to make. And and if Congress were to do that, uh, would it send a signal that might change the way in which presidents have misused the pardon power? I mean, you gave two examples. Sherry Berman pointed out uh, some others. Uh, certainly, you go back in history. I mean, Thomas Jefferson issued uh, controversial pardons. I mean, this has been with us since the beginning. Is, the, is there a way that Congress can redirect this in a different direction? Well, I, I, I'm not sure there is, and I'm not sure how much need there is for it. That is to say, I think the present situation is not really about the pardon power. It's about President Trump. That is to say, President Trump is using the pardon power in the way he uses pretty much all of his other powers, mm-hmm. right? in ways that do not respect the limits that prior presidents have understood they need to place on themselves in order to keep the constitutional game going in a responsible way. As Professor Berman says, it's who he is. He doesn't play by those rules. And he came into office as someone who clearly wasn't going to play by those rules. Um, and if he, as long as he is in office, right, this is the sort of use of the power that we should expect. If President Trump is followed in the presidency by presidents who have a more responsible approach to power in the way that you know, most of his predecessors did, then the use of the pardon power will probably go back to what it was before. Mm-hmm. Right? Frequently controversial, but lots of things that presidents do are controversial without being impeachable. Right? Impeachable uh, is a, that's something that we should say only about n- not just things that are controversial, but things that are really, really clearly out of line. Sure. And uh, and I don't think that it's in the nature of the pardon power that we have this problem as much as it is in the nature of this president. Uh, uh, Sherry Berman, last question here. <clears throat> Do you think, uh, sort of building off of what Richard Primus is saying there, where we've got an actor who is being quite different in the role as opposed to maybe a structural problem that is is being uh, taken advantage of by that actor. What about Trump changing the political calculus for these kinds of things uh, by doing what he's what he's doing? Does he set a political precedent for treating the pardon power more recklessly than other presidents have that perhaps the next president comes in and says, well, 
that's now the standard and uh, I'm going to do it too? Well, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think one of the things that Trump has done that's going to be so interesting for both scholars and publics to um, watch is he's really pushed <laughs> he's really pushed the boundaries in a whole variety of ways and reminded us that political systems operate as much um, as a set of institutions as they do a set of norms mm-hmm. and he's particularly pushed again the limits of the latter more than um, any president perhaps in recent history going back to um, Richard Nixon and I think that what this pardon shows is again as Professor Primus has said he's within his legal powers to pardon almost anyone but again he has done so he has chosen a case that is outside the norms of what presidents usually pardon again especially this early in his presidency so what he's done is kind of again take the office of the president and highlighted how much its form and its nature is shaped by the norms of office as well as the institutional and legal constraints surrounding it. And so we will have to see after Bush, especially if he is not further censured by his Republican colleagues, much less impeached, whether he has really changed the way not just the presidency but our political system works as a result of his actions. I think that's really where we are right now because he has pushed the boundaries in so many ways. Yeah. Okay, Sherry Berman. Go ahead, Richard. Let me just follow that first. Steve, can I follow that for just a second? Go ahead. I, I I think that what Professor Berman has said is very important, and I think it points us to two things that we should really keep in mind about this. The first is, what is the signal that President Trump is sending by this unusual use of the pardon power? The person he's pardoning was convicted of unconstitutionally mistreating yes. people on the basis of race. That's what he did, or at least yes. that's one of the many things that he did. If you go read a whole list of things that Arpaio did, it's quite shocking. For a president to say, you know what, I'm going to say that a person who behaves unconstitutionally in the name of treating people badly on a basis largely of race is someone who should not be punished under our system. Mm-hmm. It's a very powerful statement against what we thought were settled norms of how the law is supposed to work. And then the second thing, which comes directly also from what Professor Berman pointed out, is, is this. Think of constitutional government as like a game of, play, of, like a game of playground basketball. Mm-hmm. There are rules, but if the players in the game push the rules to their limits, if they try too hard to win and don't hold back and call fouls on themselves sometimes, <laughs> the game will break down. Yeah. Constitutional government is like that. There are lots of powers that lots of people in the system have that they're entitled to use, but if they use them at their most aggressive, the system will break down. The president has the power to veto all legislation, but a president who vetoed all legislation would bring the government to a halt, or the Senate has the power not to confirm judges. We saw this last year. Mm -hmm. They just wouldn't confirm Merrick Garland or anyone else who is nominated. It's a way of saying, we're going to exercise our powers, or I'm going to exercise my power to the fullest extent, and I don't care that if everybody did that, the game would grind to a halt. The constitutional system is not built to withstand that kind of conduct. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Sherry Berman, professor of political science at Barnard College. Richard Primus, constitutional law expert and professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Thank you very much for being here for this important conversation on Detroit Today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay. Up next, we're going to talk about why contractors for big development projects in Detroit, such as Little Caesars Arena, are failing to meet requirements for hiring Detroiters. It's a conversation you are not going to want to miss. And we want you to participate in it. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. 